We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. As the convention reaches the end of the first week of September, it seems that all their work is about to come undone. Luther Martin is convinced that the only way the American people will agree to this constitution is to be hurried into it by surprise. Edmund Randolph of Virginia declares that yet another full convention be held, but not until after the states are given the opportunity to make amendments to the draft. It seems like there is a movement to undo all that has been done. What is left to hold the convention together? Two men. Perhaps the only two men in all of American history to whom every citizen will listen. Because of the passage of time and the way history is written, we tend to think of the framers, the 55 men who over the course of the summer gathered in Philadelphia to hammer out the Constitution of the United States, we tend to think of them as a homogenous group of men who were civic-minded to the point where they sacrificed their own personal wishes and wants to establish a government that would protect liberty to be handed down to their posterity. By the end of the first week of September, the great work was done but it can hardly be said that everyone there was happy about it. In fact, many of the people there, started by Luther Martin, were quite, in fact, upset with what had been produced by the convention and openly spoke of having either A, another convention to repair the damage that was being done, or B, rejecting the work that the convention had done and simply falling apart, deunionizing as it were. It's intriguing to me because we, and, and I speak here particularly of those of us on the right, have a vision of what we believe the framers wanted and intended. And what we've discovered over the past weeks of study of the convention is that compromise after compromise 
and discussion after discussion, the ideas of morality, particularly when it came to slavery, were put aside for the expediency of union. Now, is that a bad thing? I, I, I don't think so. Um, again, one of the one of the peoples that I take issue with, some of the people I take issue with, are those who, who yell the loudest that the Constitution was flawed because it allowed for slavery and, in their words, misogyny and, and so forth and so on. Uh, the Constitution didn't actually address suffrage for women or uh, folks in general with the exception of the slaves. However, uh, it did sort of leave that up to each individual state. However, when it came to slavery, it was clear that the South, the slave states, were pushing their way to the point of you either accept us as slave states or we're not going to have a country. We're going to go form our own country right now in 1787, 1788, 1789 ish, and you will have to deal with us from that aspect. There came a time, of course, in our country, some 80 years later, where that became de facto the, the condition where the South attempted to uh, establish its own confederacy with all of that, with all of the flaws that come inherent with a confederacy type government. But by that point, of course, uh, some things had changed and attitudes and, and ideas had changed. And perhaps the true vision of some of the framers, uh, particularly those who are most venerated, was coming to pass. And that was the idea of a very strong, powerful central government that would be able to protect not just liberty, but individual liberty and force the states to do so as well. By the last week of September 1787, the work, as I said, was, was pretty much done, but it wasn't done in a way that we tend to view it in history. We tend to view it in history with bells peeling and, and crowds cheering and people throwing their hats in the air and celebration. To me, it strikes me as almost a, you know, I spent 11 years in the Navy, and we had a phrase that, that uh, you've probably heard. You've heard this phrase, well, that's good enough for government work. It, it almost impresses me that by the time the Committee on Postponed Parts reported back with their solutions to everything that we talked about uh, in the last episode, it almost is just like people just kind of threw up their hands and went, okay, that's good. We'll take that. Sure, we're not going to do any better. And, and in fact, that's almost Washington's approach. Well, it's not perfect, but we're not going to be able to do any better with this. We're, we're just not going to be able to. And so we're going to put it on the table as it is. There's going to be some discussion about the ratification process. How do we ratify this Constitution? How do we put this before the people? But before we get to that portion of things, we need to step back and take a look at those who, uh, throughout this convention, have threatened, conjoled, argued, debated, and particularly, as I said, threatened over and over again to walk out. They were just going to leave. In fact, some did. George Mason, as you will recall from some weeks ago, was displeased with the direction things were headed. He, however, in his great speech and promise, maintained that of all the people there, he had the, probably the most to lose by spending more time in Philadelphia than was necessary. 
And yet he made that great promise that he would not leave until they were done. And in doing so, trying to encourage others to stay as well. George Mason stayed until the very end. However, his name is not on the Constitution of the United States. He did not sign the document, and he became a leading anti-federalist downstream. His objections to the Constitution were, were many, but can be boiled down into two primary areas. He, he felt that there was, because there was no Bill of Rights, there was no protection for individual liberty. He, he felt very strongly that if the Constitution were to be ratified, that it had to contain the Bill of Rights, which would eventually be uh, the first proposed 13 amendments, uh, 10 of which uh, passed immediately and one of which passed uh, later on. He, uh, he was approving of the, of the Bill of Rights, and though he was an anti-federalist, he was accepting of the fact that the Constitution was ratified uh, as long as it had the Bill of Rights coming along with it. His main objection, however, of course, came in the area of slavery. Mason was a Virginian. It's possible that he was the second largest slave owner in the entire state of Virginia, the largest being, of course, George Washington. Mason was, as we talked about some weeks ago, again, morally conflicted. He was a Virginian. He was from a slave state. He owned slaves, but he found the institution of slavery to be morally objectionable. He once referred to it as a, quote, slow poison that is daily contaminating the minds and morals of our people, unquote. Like so many men, though, like Thomas Jefferson during the Declaration of Independence drafting, and like so many men even today, we recognize moral poisons, but we lack the, we, the, the will and the strength to actually do what needs to be done. I used to be a, a pastor, as you know, I went to seminary, and I mean, if there's not a hundred sermons in that simple little ideal, I, I don't know where else you would find them. The weakness of the human being to, to recognize the flaw, to see it, to argue against it, but not really able to be taking action against it is a perfect metaphor, as it were, for the, human, for the human condition. Mason stated that he had two reasons for opposing the draft constitution as finalized uh, via Rutledge and via the committee of the postponed parts. He objected to the fact that the constitution did not specifically protect the right of states to let slavery continue where it already existed. The Constitution did not outlaw slavery, but it didn't exactly protect it either. It sort of left it in a limbo condition for future generations to discover and, and to noodle out for themselves. Mason's objection was that it should have protected the institution of slavery where it existed already. However, he did not want the section that did not allow Congress to immediately stop the importation of slaves. If you recall, uh, that session basically says that not before a certain point in the future can Congress do anything, but it doesn't say that after that point they do have to do anything. 
Mason was adamant that the importation of slaves had to stop, had to be done away with. Now, there were some economic reasons for that, um, but moreover, he was concerned because of the fact that uh, with the three-fifths compromise, there was a distinct advantage to the southern states to maintain the slave trade and to continue to bring in slaves, even though Mason also recognized at the same time that it did represent an inherent danger to the republic in the sense that the non-slave states under the Constitution would have been required to provide arms, men, material to suppress any slave rebellion, which, again, we look at it today as, as something that is quaint and, and unlikely. But it was a, in the same way that today we talk about the terrorists being an existential threat was the same way that the the nation saw the the slave uprising threat in the 1790s was it likely maybe but was it probable not to the extent that it was feared and so consequently mason felt like the importation of slaves had to stop even though that was essentially being disloyal to his slave states because that was how they were going to uh, skew the influence to themselves uh, via that and via uh, the, the Congress of the United States and so forth and so on. He thought that it should stop. He balanced his anti-slavery argument that importation should stop with a pro-slavery argument that the draft constitution should protect slavery from being taxed out of existence. But... According to James Madison, that was already the case. So Mason's second argument was kind of out there. Mason represents to me, the, in so many ways, the dichotomy of a man who wants his country to succeed, understands that it is flawed, but can't support the solutions to those flaws. He is fascinating to me. He becomes, of course, the leading anti-federalist, even though um, the true anti-federalist position is more along the lines of we want an individual bill of rights. And Mason will become uh, one of the leading opponents of the Constitution unless he gets the bill of rights. But to understand that the convention was not united... That, that there was no homogenous group of men who saw things exactly the same way on September 8th, uh, 1787, the, 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 the end of the first week and effectively the end of the work of the Constitutional Convention, is, is a mistake. And to, to ascribe to these men uh, modern-day interpretations of what they thought is a dangerous thing to do and something that I, the study of the Convention has convinced me is something that we ought probably not ought do because more times than not, we get it wrong. We tend to think uh, of James Madison. James Madison, of course, is considered the father of the Constitution. In fact, that's one of the first questions that's asked in the, uh, the National Constitutional Understanding Test thing that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more next week. And he, he's considered the father of the Constitution. And yet, how many people know that he openly advocated for doing away with states and just establishing a national government. 
that's not the James Madison that we like to think about today, is it? It's, it's intriguing to me when we see these things and we begin to understand them. And, and when we look at the objections of someone like Colonel, Madison, uh, Colonel Mason, whose objections in our mind seem wrong, but in a broader sense may have had a significant influence. He felt that the centralized government could become uh, could lead to essentially a political elite class that would, as, as, as Hamilton will argue later about, uh, that will essentially become an oligarchy under themselves without any oversight, simply by buying the votes of, of, of the people. To dismiss the Anti-Federalists is to not pay attention to, to what was really going on. The world is much different, and while we have this vision of what happened in 1787, we need to understand that there was much more going on in that room than just 55 guys in powdered wigs and knickers uh, agreeing on everything. In fact, <laughs> the only day they may have actually agreed on anything was the day they agreed to show up and the day they agreed that they were done. We'll see. It's Constitution Thursday. It's Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. In the next Lawless Chat, we talk about movie and TV remakes. What? Movie remakes. I'm to say it. Say what? Movie remakes. We explore what worked, what didn't, and why. Both the big and the little screens, and is there something out there that should be remade as well? What? Remake. Made to say it. Damn it. All that on the next Lawless Chat. Right here on the Podcast 99 Network. They still haven't built a circuit that could hold him. The Eric Wallace Podcast. This is the Scotsman. And this is Drew. And we are the Ale Evangelist Show, spreading the good news of good booze across the land. Wine is nice, but beer is better. It is indeed. So tune in to us on the Podcast 99 Network, where California comes to talk, www.podcast99.com. Hi there, I'm Christine Papworth. And I'm Wendy Papworth-Bates. And we're your Real Estate Doctors. Listen to House Calls with the Real Estate Doctors on therealestatedoctors.net and podcast99.com. Hi, this is Pat from Lawless Chat. Are you a small business person looking for that perfect location in Modesto? Having the perfect space is a key to growing and being successful. 2020 Standiford has good access to Highway 99 and all of Modesto. It's the perfect location for reaching the city of Modesto and all of the great Central Valley. Mike Royer, property manager, wants to show you a spectacular 1,482 square foot office location on Standiford Avenue that's available now. It's the perfect location for developing a dynamic business here in the Central Valley. Want to know more? Call Mike today at 996-6396. That's 996-6396. Tell him Pat from Lawless Chat sent you. Hi, this is Dan, and we'd like you to join us for the Bulldog Report on the Podcast 99 Network.
for the powdered wigs and knickers inside all of us. You're listening to Constitution Thursday. By the time the report of the committee on the postponed parts was done and agreed to and accepted and modified and all of those things, the tension in that room was immense. Not only was Colonel Mason uh, quietly stewing about the fact that he wasn't going to do this, there was an open, almost open rebellion amongst dissidents in the room who felt that the convention had failed miserably. And we're already, as I said, making noise about having yet another convention to try to, quote, undo the damage, unquote, that had been done in Philadelphia. This came to light most ardently when Governor Morris proposed that for ratification purposes, the states should assemble, quote, speedily, unquote, to discuss, ratify, and and agree to the Constitution as presented. There's a great deal of, well, I'm not sure how to put it. Whenever you want somebody to make a decision, you usually, if you, if you feel that you are so right, you usually want that decision made very quickly. Imagine yourself when the high-pressure salesperson is leaning on you to buy something very quickly because he knows that if you think about it for too long, you may come up with objections. It might actually be a very good deal, but the longer you contemplate it, the more negatives you see to that, to that deal. Morris was understanding of human nature, and he felt that the quicker the states ratified this constitution, the quicker the people assembled to do so, the better off things would be. By this point, Luther Martin had become a, an outspoken opponent of the direction things were headed, and he immediately attacked Morris's position. He, in essence, said that the only way the people would ratify this constitution as presented would be if they were somehow speedily tricked into doing so. In other words, if there was not a debate, if there was no discussion, if there was no uh, counterpoint, he felt that, the qu- that if they did this so quickly, that they would, uh, they would be tricked into doing so. And they would do so with great, of course, there would be a a great deal of buyer's regret later on. And there was still the possibility, possibility, that that if this didn't work, you could end up with uh, literally states fighting each other. The other dissidents may may have been thinking that they were going to argue about this later on, but this sort of... This sort of catalyzed, uh, ca- galvanized is the word I'm looking for, the action. Eldridge Jerry, uh, the wealthy merchant, announced his agreement with Martin. The new system, he said, is full of vices, insisting that the convention has no authority to replace the Articles of Confederation. He moved to postpone it all. This goes back to the very first argument of the very first days. Do we have the authority to do anything other than modify the Articles of Confederation. Now, on literally the last few hours of the convention, Eldridge Jury says, you know what? Uh, I don't think we're supposed to be doing this. And he jumps down. 
George Mason, of course, seconded the motion. He left no doubt as his feelings, pleasant to, quote, chop off his right hand rather than sign the current draft. Without revisions, the only proper course would be, quote, to bring the whole subject before another general convention. Convention. The third one to dissent was, of course, Edmund Randolph, also of Virginia. He, Randolph is, is a classic study in in politician, even in 1787. It seems as if whichever way the wind blows on any given day is the, dra- is the direction that Randolph is going to go. And if you think back to this, it was Randolph who, on the very first day of business, introduced the idea of doing away with the Articles of Confederation and introduced the Virginia Plan, which has now been uh, massaged and modified and is, in fact, what we're actually debating. He was adamant that the state convention should propose amendments to the Constitution as it stood right now. In other words, uh, essentially what they were going to do was present the Constitution to the states saying, okay, here it is, take it or leave it. Mason, of course, wanted a Bill of Rights, uh, as did the Anti-Federalists later on, and this was essentially Randolph's position, that they be allowed to amend it before agreeing to it. Now, can you imagine the chaos that this would cause? Imagine the world of 1787, the Constitution as originally drafted comes out, the states meet in convention, and they then propose additional amendments and or changes before sending the whole thing back to yet another convention to iron out all of those things. If you go back to the very beginning of why we needed to do this, why we needed to get rid of the Confederation and replace it with a, with a central government that was capable of working, you start to realize that this delaying tactic would have simply allowed those conditions to continue. And that, of course, was not acceptable. If things continued as they were, the Union, such as it was at that point, would dissolve Some states would, uh, no doubt, try to realign themselves with with England, some perhaps with France, uh, some perhaps with Spain. Who knew? But the point was that the longer this took, the less likely that there would be any chance of the United States surviving as an independent nation, even as an independent union of 13 states. The dissidents, of course, were suggesting the second convention after the states were allowed to chime in. The men in that room must have looked around there and went, oh my God, another four or five months after all of the states weigh in? How can we possibly, in any way, shape, or form, in good conscience, countenance this. It, it, it's impossible to even contemplate the idea of coming back here yet again and doing this all over again, this time with the additional element of having the states having weighed in. Now you had men in this room of varying degrees of intensity pledging to do exactly that. Whether they were on fire like Luther Martin, whether they were middle of the road like Mason, or whether they were loose 
like Edmund Randolph. In fact, uh, Madison would later uh, criticize or chide, I guess, Randolph by claiming that the reason Randolph doesn't sign the Constitution is so that he has the most political latitude. It's, it has less to do with his convictions and more to do with his politics. This idea that we're going to come back and do all this again is weighing on everybody in this room. Can we possibly, possibly find a way to do all of this? Randolph, of course would continue, we have numerous and monstrous difficulties. Surely we ought not to increase them. When the people behold the Senate, the countenance of an aristocracy, and the president, the form of at least a little monarch, will not their alarms be sufficiently raised without taking from them their immediate representatives a right which for so long has been appropriated to them? After all this argument, now Randolph, the very man who stood in front of the convention and came up with the idea of a Senate or at least presented it anyway, now says the Senate has the appearance of an aristocracy and the president, well, you might not call him a king, but he sure looks like one. Do you really think the people are going to be okay with this? Do you really think that this is going to fly? I would imagine sitting in that room that doubts had to be raised. I would imagine that men sitting in that room having watched what's gone on all summer long, having participated in the debates and the arguments, might feel that they've hit upon good compromises. But how do you sell those to the country? How do you go out of here and present this to the nation and go, yeah, this is great, especially when the general attitude is, God, we're tired of being here, and this is the best we can do, so there. Scribble, 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 scribble. Here, there it is. When leading men like George Mason object because it doesn't protect the right to slavery. When you have all of these discussions and debates, how do you carry on at that point? These are certainly open for discussion. And I can't imagine what was going through the minds of people sitting in that room. Some of the quiet people like Wilson and Dickinson and others who might have been thinking to themselves... Did I just waste almost five months of my life? Are we really this close to the end? And now we're going to throw it all away, crumple it all up and start over again? Because I just don't think there's the motivation to do this all again. If the states reject this, we all know what's going to happen. We're going to be unified, either by the Constitution or by the sword, or we're going to be divided into a whole bunch of little nation states and become almost like Europe, which in those days, if you'll recall, it was very unusual for Europe to go more than a few years without a devastating war amongst all these little nations. The idea of doing this all over again was depressing. It was shocking, but it began to percolate that we better come up with an idea, we better come up with one real quick. We better come up with an argument as to why this is the way to do it. We better do it real quick or we're all going to be right back here again or shooting at each other, one of the two.
As you looked around the room, the end of that first week in September of 1787, it may have seemed it may have seemed hopeless. The dissidents, Luther Martin, George Mason, Edmund Randolph, Eldridge Jerry, were loud in their objections, in their committee work. They were constantly proposing new amendments to undo what had been done. And yet, the depression that you might have felt as you heard the loud squeaky wheel making as much noise as it could possibly make might have been depressing until you sat and stared around and looked around the room at the people who were there. It's interesting that despite all the noise of Martin and, and, and Jerry, despite all of that and through all of that sat two men who, for better or for worse, would come to represent what this convention had accomplished. James Madison will go down in history as the father of the Constitution, primarily, I think, because of his work as secretary, the fact that he wrote his notes, and the fact that later on, despite the fact that he adamantly opposes the idea now, will in essence draft the Bill of Rights because he, he will recognize that what has been accomplished can only continue if this is done. But when you really focus on things, when you really break them down, there are two men in this room who I, I liken to anchors, like a ship in the ports there, in that era, and even today. You oftentimes use two anchors to hold a ship in place. And those two anchors, of course, were Dr. Benjamin Franklin and General George Washington. Franklin, of course, has been, for the most part, quiet throughout the convention. There's been moments where he has spoken, but primarily he writes down what he has to say, and it's read uh, by others to the convention because he's old, folks. He's in his 80s. Think about this. This is 1787. Franklin is in his 80s. At a time when 35 was considered an elder statesman, Franklin has gone above and beyond all of that. He is perhaps the most well-known American in the entire world. Remember, he has spent time in England. He has spent time in France. He has published books. He has written extensive scientifically. He has experimented. He has discovered things. He has invented things that we still use today, bifocals, Franklin stoves, and the like. He is well-regarded and well-respected, and he is, by all accounts, a moderate in the sense that he doesn't really care what form the government takes, as long as it's not a monarchy or a tyranny, but he wants a government. He wants there to be a central government because he knows that the Confederacy has failed, and that if we continue down this path, all of the work, all of the effort, all of the, all the, the sacrifice, the blood, the sweat, the toil is meaningless. And to Benjamin Franklin, that waste would be heartbreaking. 
he is well known for his wit. He is well known for his, uh, his, his moderation. He's well known for getting people who don't like each other to sit down with one another and talk and find out the things that they have in common. One of my favorite sayings of his is when you insult a man in public, he tends to think you're serious. If you're going to insult him, do it privately. And there's a lot of truth and wisdom in what he has to say. One of my favorite books that Mojav sent to us some years ago to John and I about uh, Franklinisms, Fart Proudly. He's a man of the people. He's a man of the earth. And he is well-known and well-regarded. And if Dr. Franklin steps up and says, I support this Constitution, it is more likely that the nation will listen to Dr. Franklin than it is that they will listen to Luther Martin. And most of the men in the convention understand that fact. The other anchor is, of course, General George Washington. At this point, he is so well regarded that poetry is written about him. We read the poem the first day that he arrived at the convention way back when. And we talk about the fact that he is the father of his country. I don't know precisely when that approbation became the commonplace of, of the vision of George Washington. But when we say he is the father of his country, in so many ways, he really is. Here's a man who took a position commanding the Continental Army that didn't even exist. He took so humbly, although to say that George Washington was a humble man is somewhat disingenuous. It's somewhat misleading because he wasn't necessarily a humble man. He was humble in his actions and his, in his interactions with people. He was constantly self-deprecating in that, but he understood that he was capable and perhaps the only man capable of doing what he did during the American Revolution. He kept that army together despite all of the difficulties that they faced. And yet, there were victories in there too. Trenton, Bunker Hill, there were, there were, there were wins along the way that people forget about in all of those battles of the American Revolution. But the one constant that held almost all of them together was George Washington. Whether there was a defeat or a victory, Washington's actions were what spoke loudest to the nation. And in many ways, much like what will happen in 1864 with Abraham Lincoln and the election of 1864, in many ways, Washington is adored by not just the people of the nation, but the veterans of the American Revolution, both the militia and the Continental Army, they just adore this man in much the same way that the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac uh, and the others, the Army of Tennessee and others, will fall for Lincoln in 1864, even though George McClellan is running against Lincoln. In the same way, these men look at Washington and they understand the sacrifice. They understand what it has taken to get where they are. And if Washington stands up and says, hey, it's not perfect, but it's the best we can do. And with authentic and explicit actions by the American people, it can be changed. The people are more likely to believe Washington 
than they are to believe George Mason, who's almost unheard of outside of Virginia. Eldridge Jerry, who's, again, he's a Northeasterner. Luther Martin, Edmund Randolph, he's just the, he's just the political governor of Virginia. Why would we listen to him when we can listen to General Washington say, this is a good idea? As the work concludes, as the Committee on Style unveils the final draft, and as the first week of September winds down, and really all that's left to be done is to just kind of cross the T's, dot the I's, and figure out the presentation of the document. There's a realization around the room that Ben Franklin and George Washington are worth more than Luther Martin and Eldridge Jerry. They just are. Colonel Mason's objections are actually more tolerable to most folks there because they understand his positions on things. Martin is just a rabble-rouser, Randolph's just a politician, and Jerry just seems to be all over the place. But the slow, steady support of Franklin and Washington are going to push this thing over the edge. They're going to push it to the final line. And when everything is said and done, it is those two men who really have held everything together. History has lost to us the meetings that they had at the hotels, the banquets that Franklin would throw, the, the discussions that they would have outside of the room. But you can rest assured that behind the scenes, Benjamin Franklin brought more men together over the last four and a half months than perhaps anyone who's ever won a Nobel Peace Prize in, in the history of the world. And it is George Washington's refusal to be drawn into petty arguments and his constant dignity and his constant silence in many cases that caused men to realize that guy likes where we're going. He's a winner. <laughs> Maybe I ought to follow him. And that more than anything else will overcome all the arguments of the dissidents and put all of those debates and discussions to rest as the convention literally draws its final hours before announcing that it is done and signing the document on that great day that we will celebrate exactly one week from today. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.